Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System, which is the company I started after I wrote the book Built to Sell. You know, if you're interested in working with us, what we're going to have you do is start by completing your Value Builder questionnaire. We're going to give you a score out of a possible 100, and that's going to relate to how acquirers would view your business. The lower the score, the worse off you are, the higher the score, the better you are. And the average business who starts with us gets a score 59 out of possible 100. Now, if you work with us over time, we're going to have you work on these eight key drivers of your company's value. Think things like recurring revenue, structure of your management team, your financial performance, your growth potential. And at the end of that process, if you're able to get your score up to a score of 80 or greater, we can see statistically, now having worked with more than 20,000 businesses, that you're going to go on to improve the value of your business by an average 71%. So there's a demonstrable economic benefit to working with us. The first step is to get your value builder score. And you're going to do that by going to valuebuildersystem.com. So I'm trying to get you some case studies of different businesses, big businesses, small companies. Last month, I interviewed an entrepreneur who built a company to 600,000 in revenue and decided to sell at the age of, I think, 25. You're about to hear an interview with Mark Selka, who built a company much larger, $65 million in revenue, 15% EBITDA margins, went on to sell it for $192 million. And I'm trying to give you the breadth of possibility here so we can see the thought process, what things are consistent with a $600,000 deal versus a $192 million deal, what things are wildly different. And in this case, you're going to hear from an incredibly successful Mark Selko, built Baby Center, went on to build the company Merced, which he sold in 2012 for $192 million. Without further ado, here's Mark Selko. Mark Selko, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Good to be here. So tell us about this company, Merced. What did you guys do? So Merced was started in 2001 uh, with the purpose of improving customer service uh, functions in large companies. And our approach to that was to take complex data from lots of different data sources and turn it into important metrics, goals around those metrics, and then tools that would help people uh, have visibility into their performance and self-improve, but more importantly, tools for their supervisors to help them. And based on the complexity of those environments, based on the um, I know, low experience and management of many of those supervisors, we found it was a really interesting business to help people improve performance for the, you know, the end goal being improving the customer experience for their end customers. So that's what we did. So I think of companies these days like Zendesk or desk.com, would they have been competitors of yours? No, they would have been a data source to us. So we uh, largely worked at the big end of the market, you know, really big banks, telcos, insurance companies. And those people in those days and still use uh, products from SAP and Oracle and now maybe more so Workday. In those days, it was Siebel. Um, uh, but had it been something like Zendesk, that would have been a source. And then we would have layered on often dozens of additional data sources to calculate uh, you know, really important metrics that had to do with, let's say, one and done, first contact resolution. Uh, and keeping track of all the different channels that people use to reach out to their their bank or their insurance company, et, et cetera. Interesting. And so, where did this idea come from? I mean, uh, sounds like a unique business, but where did it, where did the idea come from? 
Yeah, it's a niche, but it was our niche, and we uh, we made a good business out of it. Uh, you know, I started it with a co-founder, someone I had started two other businesses with before. So we were serial entrepreneurs, and we had a a kind of playbook we used. We would research themes that seemed interesting to us, and uh, then we would just do intensive customer research around those themes. And you know, the theme at that point for us was uh, how can you help improve the kind of work experience of non-exempt high turnover workforces. And in, given 2001, we were still relatively early days into the, you know, the recent wave of technology and internet economy. And uh, you know, we thought, yeah, if you could find a way through the browser to deliver these really complex derived metrics and goals and apps, could you make a difference to that work experience? And we started with recruiting and hiring. We quickly concluded that wasn't the best of the ideas. And we landed on what we ended up calling performance management, and that became uh, the category. And you started in 2001. When did you end up, uh, end up selling? We sold, uh, we signed a definitive agreement to sell in the end of 2011, um, and we sold to a company, we're in a, a US-based business based in Northern California, and we sold to a, a company that was based outside the US, so there was a regulatory period. We closed in 2012, so we were doing it for uh, over 10 years. Wow. And and just to give us a sense of, of the revenue that you you built the company to by the time you sold it? Yeah, we were doing about $65 million in revenue with about 15% EBITDA margins in the year that we sold. Fantastic. And so how did you finance that growth? I mean, did you go to outside capital? Did you bring venture capitalists in? Was it all self-funded? What was the structure there? Yeah, we self-funded for the first year. It was uh, me, my business partner, and three initial engineers. And when we got our alpha customers, uh, we raised money. Uh, we raised a pretty modest amount of money for, well, given how much people raise in today's climate, we raised $2.5 million in the fall of 2001. And as it turns out, that's the only money we ever raised. We, uh, Because we were selling to really, really big businesses, we had significant contracts. And because this was before the software as a service revolution, uh, people bought licenses from us and they paid up front. So we managed to uh, f you know, finance the company with one round of venture capital, and then we became profitable on that round, and we financed the remaining 10 years on our operating cash flow. How much equity did you have to give in the, in the business to, uh, that you sold for two and a half or, or two, two and a half million dollars? Um, a lot. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, fall of 2001 was a terrible time to raise money, but we, you know, we weren't wealthy enough to finance except for that first year. So we gave up it was in the 35 to 40% range uh, for that equity. And, you know, that dilution was su substantial. And, you know, we were, we were committed to, you know, do as little dilution thereafter as we could. So the only downstream dilution we had since we didn't raise more outside capital was to hire employees. And all employees were given equity in the business. Got it. So tell us about the process of selling. You, you, you got to the point of 2011. You had this great business, fat margins, lots of revenue, a lot of it recurring, I'd imagine. Why sell? A uh, couple reasons. Some were personal, some were business. The, the, the business ones were the predominant ones. We, uh, we, our rate of growth was slowing, and you know, we were in a, a, a competitive category, and uh, you know, we grew a little anxious. So we were still growing in the, I'd say, 20, low 20s uh, percentage points per year, but that was declining. Um, we were living and dying on these really massive orders from big companies. So we had long sales cycles, often longer than a year. Uh, so we had low predictability into revenue, which meant it was a very stressful 
business. And the bigger we got, the bigger the orders we need to kind of feed the village, the greater the stress was. Um, uh, so we expanded internationally and in, in a way that wasn't going as well as we hoped. We were adding business, but at a slower rate than we did in North America, in the US and Canada. Uh, so we, we knew we had to keep feeding this animal, um, but we were running into sort of a strategy moment. So that led us to start thinking about whether we should either go back and raise more money to become a consolidator or do nothing or sell the business. And uh, we, with our board, decided to look at those three options in depth. And explore them for me. What were the pros and cons of each? Yeah, it was, um, it was a really fascinating time. And I look back on it with fondness because it was, you know, when you start a company, it's a really strategic moment in your life. And then you just live in tactics for years and years and years, landing customers, fulfilling their needs. Um, and you know, strategy goes by the wayside. This was truly a strategic moment. And so it was exciting, you know, however scary. So we, you know, we started with the do nothing scenario and we looked at the, uh, you know, what, what are the different probabilities around our rate of growth? What are the probabilities of our success entering Asia? Um, uh, continental Europe, we had done well in, uh, in the UK. We'd done well in Commonwealth countries, but we were expanding elsewhere. You know, what were the probabilities of success in some new products that we were investing in? We, we did have the cash flow to invest in new products, and one of them looked like it was about to succeed, but it was hard to tell. And, um, and then we looked at the other side of the ledger and said, okay, what are our competitors doing? What's happening with demand? And there really were some ominous signals on the horizon. We were a niche vendor, although a pretty big one. Uh, there were much bigger companies than us, you know, the big, big players in software, and they were consolidating and buying other companies. And we saw our win rate declining a little bit. And the reason we would get on interviews after a loss was, well, I need fewer vendors. I don't need more. So I'm going to go with a suite provider. So um, we did the pros and cons in that scenario. Th then we thought, well, what would it look like if we became a consolidator and a suite provider? And clearly, we didn't have the capital to build products from scratch. We would need to do acquisitions. And we had done an acquisition, a small one, in the UK to get into a new category and expand to Europe. And it had gone pretty well for us. But we needed a lot of capital. Uh, so um, I'll, I'll come back to it. But we did go to the private equity markets, and we got a term sheet to um, raise actually a substantial amount of money to be an acquirer. And so we thought about that. But it came with an enormous amount of risk, because the terms, at least in those days, um, protected the investors on the downside, not us so much. And everybody did well on the upside. So that was very much a risk assessment. What were the risks to you personally by going the PE route? I mean, what, what was it? Was your house on, on the line or was it more just the, the loss of your, the dilution of your equity in, in, in Merced? Yeah, there were, there were no, thankfully, personal assets on the line. We hadn't, um, like I'm sure is true for many of your listeners, we, it wasn't the case for us. Um, but you know, we had spent a decade of our lives working nights and weekends. Um, you know, we both had young families. It was, uh, it, it, if things hadn't gone well, we hadn't achieved the growth. In contrast with the do nothing scenario and the private equity scenario, you know, many of, uh, uh, you know, much of the equity would convert to them because uh, they had the downside protection and the security they were offering. Of course, we had the choice of saying yes or no to that. But had we said yes, it just was a, it was daunting. It was sort of burning the boats behind you, grow at, grow at all costs. So um, yeah, it was equity that was at risk. Got it. And so how did you guys end up deciding to sell? What was it? Was there a... What? Yeah. 
so we, um, yeah, we explored option three, which was let's go see if um, you know one of these consolidators or you know even a, another company would value what we're doing. And we uh, we did have some inbound interest from a, a company that we'd come to know over the years. And I'd say this, you know, one of the things that I, I've learned from this is if you think you might sell one day, which of course is not what many people want to do, but if you think you might, it often makes sense to get to know those players so that, you, you know, you get a sense of what matters to them. They have a sense of who you are. You have some, you, you have a baseline in your relationship. And, uh, you know, some of these were our competitors, but we still made it a point to get to know them and they did with us. And that happens a lot in software, maybe, maybe more so in other sectors. So we, um, we decided we were going to explore all three options. Uh, we had a board meeting. Uh, we had to work it out with our investor. In contrast with what people normally think about venture capitalists, uh, many people think they make you sell when you don't want to. This was the opposite. We were interested in exploring the option, and our investor, in, venture investor didn't want us to. He, he felt like we had uh, you know, lots of room to grow. So we, we had to go on long walks and have long meetings. And then we, we came to the conclusion that we were going to explore it. Did then you, the next, out of interest, Mark, did you have a controlling share of, of, the, of the voting shares in, among you and your partner? No, my partner and I and the venture investor at this point had about the same stake. So um, there were provisions in the government document governance documents of the company that basically we each had a gun to each other's head. So nobody had more power than the other. Um, you know, the venture investor didn't want to push us out. We were running the business competently and he believed in us and, and we were doing well. And we didn't have enough voting power to just overrule him. We had to work it out. And we did. So it was kind of a happy ending to that story that we were able to agree. So you go on these long walks and you eventually get, get him to agree that that's the right conclusion. Um, was there any dissension between you and your partner, or were you absolutely convinced together that you both wanted to sell? Um, at first, we did not align. My, my partner was more concerned about the, uh, you know, the smoke signals on the horizon, um, and I was um, less so. I was really interested in, um, in, in staying the course. So I lined up with our investor a little bit more. But... Um, you know, in hindsight, I think my business partner was was right. Yeah, I think the trend towards suites, the trend towards new models of software was um, a pronounced one. And uh, he managed to convince me. Uh, so we also had our long walks, although I think it was easier for he and I to come together than with our investor. It, was, it all did work out. What was the most compelling reason he used on you? I mean, was it personal about, I mean, he obviously would know much about your personal life or was it very strategic business, you know, dollars and cents, zeros and ones? It was a combination. You know, it's, it's interesting to look back on it. He, um, you know, he did lay out facts about the landscape. We, you know, we could look at win and loss rates. We could look at, you know, trends in M&A and consolidation. We knew enough customers in common who could tell us how their buying decisions were being influenced. So, you know, he, he laid it out in a very logical way. But then, you know, we're serial entrepreneurs and he, he did make the personal appeal, which is, hey, we've done a good job here. We've built something of value. I think it'll be a good financial outcome you know, um, do you really want to spend the next 10 years working in the same sector? Don't you have interest in other areas? And at that point, my kids were young. They're 11, 9, and 7 today. And so they were, uh, I don't know, at that point, they were kind of 8, 6, and 4. Um, he's like, it'd be, it, it'd be nice to get into a different kind of business where every Monday morning didn't mean going to the airport, which it did. 
because we had these big customers increasingly internationally, I traveled all the time. So there was a little bit of uh, be with the family, uh, a little bit, um, you know, we're, we're, we're both in our late 40s at that point. I'm 50 now. Um, isn't there another chapter in a different sector? Wouldn't that be fulfilling? And then, of course, here are the facts about the market. Got it. So it had both, all three sort of elements to it. So let's get into the transaction itself. So you make the decision to sell. Did you hire an M&A banker to represent you? I mean, make, take us through kind of the mechanics of the next steps. Yeah, we did. So um, we decided since we were exploring all three options, we just didn't have the capacity to you know, go down all three at once. Um, so we, we, we divided and conquered a bit. We hired a banker. We did a review. We chose a, a bank. They did a nice job for us. Uh, we had had an experience working with a bank uh, in a previous transaction, and we didn't feel we got great value. So we had some skepticism, but we felt it was worth giving a try, and we came to a, a deal that made sense. Who was the firm? We used Jeffries. Okay. So you hired Jeffries. Yep. And uh, we agreed that my partner would run the process, both with the PE firm and, uh, and with the banker, I would be involved, but I would be more involved in running the day-to-day -day of our business. So I, you know, I stepped up in an operating way. And this is the nice thing about having a business partner that, you know, when these moments come that you just hadn't planned for or budgeted for, I mean, who's got time? Uh, there were two of us, so we could divide and conquer. Got it. And so walk through that process if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. All right. So, um, you know, we signed on with the banker. We came to terms with them. They did what, you know, bankers do. They interviewed us. And uh, then we had to make a key decision, which is how visible do we want this process to be to our team? We had, uh, you know, something like 250 employees in the business, and it could be incredibly destabilizing and concerning if everybody knew that we were exploring this. So we made a decision that we were going to share it with, um, uh, with the senior executives only. Uh, they would be necessary in the process. They would be great advisors to us. Any acquirer, not to mention the private equity firm, would need to get to know them to be comfortable, but we would keep it to, to that. So we decided on how visibility. And then we began um, with the banker coming up with the narrative, the narrative, excuse me, and the story. Like what uh, is going to make most strategic sense based on the profiles of the various buyers? We built the list of the buyers and you know, we divvied up making the phone calls and we got to work. So you personally made some of the calls to to potential buyers, not just your banker. We did, yeah. We, um, uh, you know, there's some uh, arguments that the process is, you know, best and has the most integrity if the banker does them all. Um, you know, that sort of arm's length. Uh, you know, we're running a process, create a bit of an auction kind of feeling. Sometimes can accrue to a to a better price, but in some cases, our relationships with these. Uh, buyers were such that we, we felt they needed to hear it from us. That was the right thing to do. And then the banker would be brought in as a part of the process. So we did that in a few select cases as well. And what was the, uh, you know, the take up from the market? Did you get a number of offers? Uh, so, um, you know, when I look back on it now, so we, uh, we met with a few private equity firms. We got a term sheet from one. We really liked them. It felt like good chemistry, although we were frightened by some of the terms. Um, and uh, we had one clear offer, and this is from the firm we ended up selling to, just cutting to the chase, and there were a few other parties that were seemed interested, were meeting, but they didn't seem to have the urgency to move. Um, and uh, so in the end, our choice came down to do nothing, uh, move forward with private equity, or the one offer to, to sell. And we concluded that we were more interested in that one offer to sell 
but we had to negotiate on it. And so we did. And so where did it start and where did it end up in terms of the offer? What were the, what were the material differences between the start offer and the, uh, the final sale? Yeah, the initial offer is, if my memory serves me, was um, a cash offer. And we had sold a prior business for equity um, in the go-go 1999 period. So there's a, this is a longer, separate conversation. We sold for equity and you know, regretted it. Um, it was this, not the right thing This is Baby Center. That's right. We yeah. sold to a company that went public and then went bankrupt. So a uh, big lesson learned. And Baby Center was then successfully sold to Johnson & Johnson, which has operated it really successfully. It continues to do well, but it, you know, there was a lot of value lost in the chapters leading up to the J&J acquisition. So we knew we wanted this to be, if not entirely, principally cash. So we got a cash offer and we steered them to do that. Um, but it, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for us to say that it's better than the private equity offer or do nothing. Uh, we, we, we played it pretty honestly. We didn't tell them that there were other acquisition offers when there weren't. Um, that would have been nice, but we didn't have that. So we said, well, guys, here's transparently how we're deciding. It's the offer you make isn't attractive enough for us to, you know, choose this over do nothing or the private equity where we get to still operate it. So um, you got to do better. And they came back and they improved the base cash and they added um, uh, an earn out. Um, and now the total consideration was attractive, uh, but you know the terms of the earnout were not what we wanted them to be. So I'd say the bulk of the negotiation, which went on for, I mean, a couple of months, I, uh, looking back on it, were mostly about the terms of the earnout, the duration of the earnout, and the you know exactly how we're going to measure success. And it was um, you know it was pretty arduous negotiation, and it, it ended up in a place where both sides were comfortable. And so what was the total sale price they announced publicly? The sale price that was announced was um, approximately $150 million, but that did not include the earnout. The earnout was about a, a little over $40 million. So the, the total consideration at full earnout attainment was $192 million in cash uh, U.S. currency. Got it. And so um, the 150 downstroke, the upfront, if you will, the cash piece represented – I'm just looking at my my numbers here. About 15 times EBITDA. Is that right? Yeah, that's about right. Ball, and it was mark. yeah, and it was about three ish. Um, depending on whether you use bookings or revenue, it was three to three and a half times the the top line. You know, which was about like right in the ballpark comparable multiple for a company growing at our rate and at our size in a category that wasn't considered sexy at the time. It was more of a meat and potatoes category. So we have, we thought it was fair. Got it, and it sounds great. And the earnout itself, what were the what were the deal points? What were they pushing for, and what did you you know end up pushing back on? Oh, no surprise, they wanted it to stretch out over a year or two, and uh, you know have it be based on oh, I, you know, I could my memory could be wrong here, but certainly around longer term bookings, customer renewals, cash collected, and you know that's in their interest. So I understand why they wanted it. But, you know, we'd sold companies before and knew that once you sell your company, no matter what you negotiate for, you just don't have the control. And if you seek to negotiate those kinds of control, the, then the integration fails. So we countered with an incredibly short period. Um, so this was in the fall of 2011. And uh, we uncovered through probing in them that they were mostly worried about what we were going to book in the fourth quarter. Uh, because they knew that we booked these big contracts that had these long tails, customers almost always renewed. Uh, we had historic data that showed that when people signed in year one, they spent three or four times that amount 
over a five-year period. They just wanted to know that um, when we announced the acquisition, that our team would close business and stay motivated, that customers would still buy from us. And we, so we countered with a earnout that was entirely based on bookings only, orders signed by December 31st, 2011. And they agreed to that. So uh, we weren't sure they would, uh, but they did. And so it was a you know, pretty straightforward process for us to then say, well, well, you know, we have, we believe in our strong relationships with our customers. We believe in the motivation of our sales team. You know, we believe in our company's ability to execute. If you just leave us alone for this two to three month period to go do what we need to do, we will um, live and die in the earnout based on what we close. So that that's uh, what we agreed to, and and it worked out pretty well. And were you able to hit the earnout? We exceeded the earnout, and we achieved the full amount. Wow. And they uh, were really honorable. They uh, they paid the full amount. You hear about lots of games, and they really do happen both with earnout and with escrow. There was clearly an escrow amount here that was held for an eighteen month period. You know, with all kinds of contingencies that were negotiated. And, uh, you know, this was a really uh, honorable acquiring company and they, uh, they paid out the full amount on both. Fantastic. Well, good for you. It sounds like you guys, you guys did an amazing job of, of, of negotiating. I mean, if you had it to do over again, what one thing might you do differently if you could turn back time? You know, there's this, uh, you know, wish we had. It's like, obviously it would have been great if there was another company that was as eager to acquire us. So hard to know how we might have accomplished that. You know, perhaps had we migrated from licensed software to SaaS a little bit faster, we did have about 35, 40% of our business was recruiting, uh, recurring, but a lot of that was maintenance, which in the software business is good, but not as attractive as, uh, you know, subscriptions recurring. I think we could have made that switch sooner and other companies would have been more interested. Um, that would have been good. But no, otherwise, I thought we played our hand as it existed about as well as we could have. And the PE offer on the table, was it the classic two bites of the apple, we'll sell you, you know, we'll buy half now and then you know, we'll, we'll sell a bigger you five years from now for a bigger multiple? They were going to buy most of the company. It was more than half. Um, and this is where my memory is a little fuzzy on what exactly you know, the terms were. They, they bought most of the company. They made sure that management had a proper incentive. I mean, it was really a thoughtfully constructed, but um, they needed to put structure around the security to protect them in the downside because they just, you, you know, I guess didn't feel so confident about our growth. So uh, it was more of that kind of a, uh, of a model. Got it. And so, I mean, an obvious question, but how did life change for you personally, Mark? I mean, you've got a huge check in the bank. Obviously, there are multiple shareholders, but at the same time, you know, it was a good win for you personally. I mean, yeah. are you on the beach now? I mean, oh, tell no, us a little I'm, bit about that. I'm, a, you know, I'm, as I'm sure it's true for many of your listeners, or they wouldn't have started their businesses. I'm a bit of a compulsive guy. I'm happiest when I'm in motion. And so, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll answer two different questions. One, what happened after the acquisition? How was that for me? And then what am I doing now? Uh, you know, so after the acquisition, this acquirer, you know, uh, asked me to play a, an oper a bigger operating role. They gave me a division, a prior acquisition to help turn around. It had been struggling. And, uh, you know, based on the premise that, you know, founders after acquisitions often check out. And so you have to give them interesting jobs or you don't get the value of their, you know, their skill and their knowledge. So these guys, uh, I kept running my old division and I had this turnaround. Uh, and I have to say, they, it was pretty interesting assignment. 
um, that was the good side of it. And I really liked the people I was working with. The downside was it, it was a much bigger global uh, you know, set of obligations. So my travel only increased. And you know, mornings were spent talking to Europe and evenings were spent talking to Asia. And you know, my family life balance got worse, not better. So, um, you know, I did my best to make the most of it and to learn and uh, and to try this turnaround thing that I'd never done before, which was really exciting. But then when my contract ended, I had a, a nearly two year contract as a part of the deal. Uh, I, I knew that it was time for me to step aside and, you know, coach soccer and join the school board and drive my kids to school every day, which I now do. So that was that was good. It, and then the second question, what am I doing now? I am. Uh, I'm in an interim CEO CEO role of a uh, of a great company. I'm really proud to be a part of. I'm looking for my replacement. I got asked to do it by uh, by some investors, and I'm working on a startup company and um, still refining that idea. But I, I'm at it again. <laughs> what a fantastic, fantastic story! One of the great serial entrepreneurs of our time. I appreciate you taking some time to share your story, Mark. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for uh, being interested, and uh, I hope people enjoyed the stories. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.